Well, I love that song by Bob Dylan because it talks about something that we all know. We're all looking for a shelter from the storms of life. And whether it's, uh, whether it's grief, like the funeral we had yesterday that was just a reminder of hope and the shelter we need in the midst of that, whether it's the pressures of life, whether it's a relational conflict, there's a sense in which there's forces all around us that are trying to pull at us, whether it's the force of gravity pulling us down, whether it's the, the, the blowing in the wind idea of things pushing us back and forth. And what God offers is a way in which he can be that shelter from the storm, like he can reach out and hold us in such a way that he can hold us as the shelter in the midst of the, the chaos of life that may go back and forth or up or down. And you might say, well, that's a nice idea, Chad. That's a nice sentiment. That's a sentiment. That's a nice concept. It's a little bit wishful thinking, a little bit of a fairy tale that this invisible God can hold you in the midst of your difficulty. But God says that he, his spirit is invisible, but it really can be a shelter in the storm. And because we've been using some wind experiments to explain that there's some scientific principles that can can uh, teach us some spiritual truths, I want to show you another one using a principle called Bernoulli's principle. And Bernoulli's principle shows that fast-moving air has a low pressure or lower pressure than than other air. And so I'm going to use this leaf blower to blow this uh, this ball. And instead of it just blowing the ball off into the middle of nowhere, you're going to see that the air is actually going to come out, surround the ball like a big hand, and hold it. Instead of blowing it out into the audience, I can actually suspend it and actually overcome the pressure of gravity because something is holding it and becoming the shelter of it in the midst of it. We'll see if it works. It worked! So in the same way that wind can actually reach out and grab something, and even at an angle, overcome the force of gravity, God says that his spirit and his promises can reach out and hold us as the pressures of life try and pull us down. And Bob Dylan, I love his songs because they're so honest. He's saying we're, always looking for, we're all looking for something to, to either medicate our storms or to overcome our storms or to hide in the midst of the storms. Whatever your storms are. Whatever difficulties you're going through that maybe no one knows about, but, but they're right beneath the face that you're wearing. God's offering something that can hold you in the midst of difficulty. I want you to hear somebody tell an honest story of his journey and how a difficulty in his marriage and a difficulty in his family led to him finding a kind of shelter that could exist even in the midst of his problems. Let's watch. My name's Chris Rice. I am almost 34. I uh, live right outside of Chicago. Started out in my career early as an athletic trainer, still am, but I worked with athletes and so now I've transferred into the surgical side of things. I love what I do and I have a passion for it. I love athletes. I love just putting my life into them. I grew up right outside of Detroit. I had what I thought was a blissful childhood. I'm the oldest of four boys. My dad played professional hockey. My mom was a figure skater. Senior year of college, I'm on spring break, skip class, drive down with a bunch of buddies to Fort Lauderdale, and I meet this girl. She says to me something while we're engaged that kind of rocked my world. She's like, you've got an anger problem. And you need to deal with this before we get married. We ended up having two kids really quickly, 14 months apart. And what I started to see was the same tracks. So my 
wife is sitting there with kids and I'm at my work. I remember my wife said, Chris, you're a construction boot and I'm a flower and you crush me. The train fell off the tracks in August of 2011, feeding my son in the middle of the night. My wife says, it's your turn to feed, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's 3 a.m., like I'm losing all this sleep. I just can't handle it anymore. I'm trying to feed him out of the bottle, and he's falling asleep at the bottle. I'm pinching him to try and wake him up. He's not waking up. Finally, I pinch him hard enough to get a yelp, and that yelp is the undoing of my life. My wife ended up calling DCFS that I had pinched and left a bruise on my son. They showed up at my door and basically gave me the option, you can either leave or you can be carried away in handcuffs. So my wife left for Southern California, took the boys with her. I had no control of it. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't feel like the father that I know that I am and wanted to be. I had my best friend in the whole world basically say to me, he said something that was intriguing to me. He said, picture yourself standing on a mountain and you've got all this chaos flowing around you, just swirling around. And imagine being able to be present on the top of that mountain with the chaos and being able to live free. And I found grace and love in a way that I have never, ever felt in my entire life. It's shattered my worldview, it's shattered my idea of Christianity, it's given me hope for healing, consistent healing, it's given me friendships that I'd take a bullet for. I'd say the pinnacle for me is I realize that I am a construction booth, but I see the flower. So I was actually just in California two days ago, I spent five days with my boys, they stayed with me. I love them dearly. This is what God said to me, Chris, I'm your dad, but I'm also their dad. And you're on loan. Those aren't your boys, they're my boys. And I father them. You get to be a part of it. So whatever your part is, fulfill it to the greatest of your ability. You know, Chris discovered that the storms of life can pound hard against our lives and knock us off, all off our feet. I mean, they can come at us from almost any direction. And they pound hard against our sense of this is how life ought to be. This is the way it ought to work. They can even bring into question the very goodness of God. Like the biopsy you got last week comes back positive. Now you've got cancer. And you wonder why. Or maybe you discover that your spouse is having an affair. And that creates more pain and anguish than you ever imagined. And you wonder, what did I do to deserve that? Or you get that phone call in the middle of the night. You discover your son has been arrested. Now I think of the storms of life that Patty and I have faced, a couple of them. I mean... There was a diagnosis of Crohn's disease, the loss of job, prostate cancer, two kids with brain tumors, and then surgeries. Suddenly, the 
clouds begin to build and the wind begins to blow and you just can do nothing but hunker down and hang on for dear life. You see, storms in life, they're inevitable. I mean, on one, one occasion in the storm created before World War II, Winston Churchill was asked uh, to explain the decision of the Soviets that confounded everyone. He said this, It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. You know, that's an apt description for life, isn't it? I mean, life is filled with numerous riddles wrapped in mysteries, hidden inside of enigmas. Like, why is it that you can put an even number of socks in your washing machine, but an odd number come out? That's a mystery, isn't it? Oh, why is it that when you take your car to the shop, something goes wrong with your car, it disappears when the mechanic is behind the wheel, and it reappears five miles from the shop? Uh, that's a mystery as well. There are other mysteries, uh, like why the med student with such promise dies at age 25, but the serial killer lives on unapprehended. Or why the child is born, an innocent child is born with an immune deficiency, and another child has a, a healthy body that he misuses and abuses his entire life. Mysteries in life, they confound us. And they force us to ask the question, why? I mean, sometimes God answers. Sometimes He doesn't. And when there's silence from heaven... We feel like you, we've been left blowing in the wind, and that's a mystery as well. So how do you handle the inconsistencies and mysteries of life? Well, that's one of the questions Solomon is wrestling with in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, Solomon is coming to grips with reality throughout the book, and it's a very painful journey. I mean, reality can be a great teacher. A reality can instruct us on things we're unwilling to learn by any other means. I mean, for instance, I was a very stubborn child growing up. I tended to learn things the hard way. I don't know how many times my mom told me, don't put your hand on top of the stove. But I didn't believe there was anything up there that could hurt you, so I did as I pleased. And then one day, reality taught me a very painful but beneficial lesson. You see, reality can be a hard teacher, but it can also be a beneficial one. And reality is showing Solomon that life is a mystery. In other words, it doesn't work the way he thinks it ought and we think it ought. In fact, when you come over to chapter 8, you discover that Solomon gives us three mysteries, three enigmas. Three riddles, if you will, that have confounded him throughout his life. Let's look at the first in verse 10. It says, And then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. I mean, Solomon is saying that a wicked person is buried and he's given such an impressive funeral that the wickedness of this person is just glossed over and he sounds like a saint. 
Now, you could call that the mystery of unjust praise, couldn't you? In fact, the Living Bible gives us a healthy, a helpful paraphrase. Listen to what it says. You can put that slide up. There we go. He's seen, he says, I've seen the wicked buried and their friends return from the cemetery, having forgotten all the dead men's evil deeds. Those men were praised in the very city where they had committed their many crimes. How odd. I mean, how odd indeed. I mean, we would say that's not right. That's not fair. That's not the way life ought to work. I mean, it reminds me of the woman who went to her husband's funeral. Her husband was known as a notorious criminal. And after listening to one eloquent eulogy after another after another, she leaned over to her son and said, Go up there and see if your dad's in the casket. I mean, we, we've met people like that in situations like that. People who receive unjust praise. I mean, maybe it's your boss who receives praise from a client for an idea you had to convince him of. Or maybe it was your idea altogether, uh, but he's long since forgotten that. Or, or maybe you realize he could have never pulled off that presentation if it hadn't been for you, but he's sitting there just receiving all the praise. And what rises up inside of us is this righteous indignation that says, I've got to set the record straight. Well, Solomon would say, no, don't. It's futile. It's going to sound like sour grapes. Why? Because life is not fair. Life is unjust. But, but there's a second enigma Solomon gives us that has confounded him all his life. It's found in the next verse. It says, because a sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Several years ago, after planning a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, I remember one afternoon... Uh, noticing a car that would pull into the far parking lot on the other side of our lake. Now, there was nothing unusual about that. Um, I mean, people parked in our parking lot all the time to enjoy a walk around the lake. It was a wonderful pastoral setting. Uh, but this was a little odd because that car would show up about three or four times a week in the late afternoon and about two minutes after it arrives, a second car would arrive and park next to the first car. And the man and woman would get out and get in the same car. And they would be in that car for the next hour. And I thought, that's odd. <laughs> They're not walking around the lake. They're even facing the opposite direction of the lake. Well, one day I had about all the mystery I could take. And I decided to go over there and introduce myself. So uh, after doing that, I said, um, and I see you guys here three or four times a week. Um, uh, I mean, parking lot's kind of an odd place to visit, isn't it? When you've got this beautiful lake out here. And they said, oh, we just love the setting. We love the peace. It's a great place to come for maybe 30 minutes to an hour before we head home in the chaos that's there. And I said, well, that's, that's great. I, I appreciate you guys enjoying the setting and feel free to use it. I said, you guys married? And they said, yes. And they showed me their wedding rings. 
I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the fact they showed me their wedding ring, or maybe it was the guilty look on the woman's face. But the next thing out of my mouth just kind of jumped out before I really knew what I was saying. I said, well, you guys aren't having an affair, are you? And uh, they looked at me surprised and said, well, we are married. And the man said, I'm telling you the truth with his finger out like that. I said, well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to offend you, uh, but I, I hope you all enjoy um, coming up here. This is a great place to sit and chat. And I turned to walk away, and then it hit me. I, I just couldn't help myself. I turned around and said, can I ask you one more question? Are you married to each other? They said, no. I said, so you are having an affair. And they said, yes, but we didn't lie to you. Now, here's a couple that was raising the moral banner of truthfulness, but had been deceived by their own behavior. Not only that, but they're deceived into thinking, uh, not thinking rationally about what this was going to create in their families and all the devastation that was going to result. And so before I, I had a chance to think, I said, well, you don't think that's a good thing, do you? And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I wished at that moment a bolt of lightning had struck or a clap of thunder that would have punctuated that question. Now, why? Because I know the devastation, the hurt, the betrayal that can take place in their lives as well as the lives of their family members, especially the kids, that can last for generations and generations. But... There was no lightning. Now, that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. That's what he means when he says the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. I mean, since the consequence of lies, untruthfulness, secrets don't materialize right away, what do we do? We have a tendency to rationalize our own behavior. I mean, I'm amazed at how many people can get away with lying and deception, and which encourages more acts of wrongdoing that virtually go uh, uncontested by life, untouched by the consequence of their behavior. And everything within me wants to say, that's not right, that's not fair. But it's life. Solomon would say, it's a mystery. There's a third enigma that confounded Solomon. It's found in verse 14. It says, there is a vanity which occurs on the earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the works of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the works of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. I mean, we've all observed this. I mean, why is a courageous missionary martyred, but the murderer gets away free, is never caught? I mean, why is a loving family trapped in an automobile in an accident that they end up dying from, but the drunk driver walks away without a scratch? Rabbi Harold Kushner wrestled with the same question. Listen to what he said. He said, there, uh, 
the, the misfortunes of good people are not only the problem to the people who suffer in their families, they are a problem to everyone who wants to believe in a just and fair and livable world. They inevitably raise questions about the goodness, the kindness, even the existence of God. And then he goes on to say, I've seen people made noble and sensitive through suffering, but I have seen many more people grow cynical and bitter. I've seen people become jealous of those around them, unable to take part in the routines of normal living. I have seen cancers and automobile accidents take the life of one member of a family and functionally end the lives of five others who could never again be the normal, cheerful people they were before the disaster had happened. Solomon would call that the mystery of unfair consequences. In other words, they defy explanation. And then with rare insight in verse 12, Solomon seems to find comfort in the fact that there will be justice one day. Let's read further. It says, and though sinners, uh, do, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are a shadow, because he does not fear God. Now, you read the words fear God in that verse, and it causes you to ask the question, now why is that a good thing? And what does it mean to fear God? Well, you need to know the, the word fear is used by Solomon here does not necessarily mean to be scared of or afraid of God. Uh, it has to do more with respect than being afraid or scared. In other words, in the same way you might respect Warren Buffett's advice on investing, you respect God's advice on living life. I mean, if anyone knows investing, it's Warren Buffett, isn't it? But it's actually your respect for Warren Buffett that makes you afraid of going against his advice and saying, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need Buffett. And the same is true with God. I mean, Solomon is saying that though the guilty may get away with murder a hundred times over, remember, God does know what he's doing. And though the rewards of life seem reversed at times, and the lifestyle of the wicked, you need to know, it will not last forever, and there may be comfort in the fact that God will cause everyone to be accountable one day for their behavior. But that really begs the question, doesn't it? I think the question you want to ask is, so how do we live in a world that's so inconsistent? In other words, how do we handle the mysteries of life? Well, that's the very question that Solomon begins answering in verse 15 by giving us two rare insights. Look there with me. He says, so I commend judgment. I mean, I can, I'm sorry, I commend enjoyment because a man is nothing better under, has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. 
for this will remain with him in his labors all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Now, you read that, and it sounds like Solomon is promoting some kind of hedonistic lifestyle, doesn't it? But, but you need to know the word uh, that Solomon uses for enjoyment here, the kind he's talking about, doesn't necessarily come from happy, pleasant circumstances where everything goes the way we want it to. I mean, that would be hedonism. And by the way, that's exactly what underlies the marketing we see going on all around us today and inundates the commercials you see on TV as well as the basic ingredient on Internet and magazine ads. What Solomon is saying here is, yes, life is to be enjoyed, but this kind of joy Solomon talks about is a joy that accompanies even the most difficult and unpleasant circumstances of life. In other words, true joy, true contentment in life doesn't come from having things the way you like it, the way you want it. True joy comes no matter what you might be going through, the kind of enjoyment Solomon's talking about here. And according to this book that Solomon wrote, that true joy comes when you begin accepting life as a good gift, coming from the hands of a good God. In other words, the key to life is accepting life and all of its complicated and confusing ramifications as a good gift given to you by God. And that's exactly what he's referring to when he says all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. In other words, life and all of its complicated ramifications is a gift from God. You see, in God's economy, there's nothing wrong with possessions. But you need to know there's nothing in possessions and there's nothing in material goods. There's nothing in money itself. There's nothing in man himself that enables him to keep enjoying the things he does. But it is possible to have enjoyment all through life if you take it as a good gift from the hands of a good God. Now, did you know that's the very same thing Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 7? In fact, I'd like to show you exactly what he said there. Jesus said this, What man is there among you who, if he... If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent or a snake. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, in Jesus' day, a bed that was baked in an outdoor oven uh, look very similar to a stone. I mean, it was hard to, hard to tell the difference between the two. And the only way you really could tell the difference is by picking them up. One is extremely heavy and one is extremely light. In other words, they look similar. And in the first century... Uh, there was a Roman delicacy that was known as eel. In fact, I brought one along this morning so you could see it and picture it. 
Now, uh, this is a saltwater eel. The, the ones the Romans uh, ate were freshwater eels. You can kind of see them down there on the bottom. Now, an eel is a fish. And uh, you know he's a fish because he's got gills, uh, he's got fins, and he's got scales. That's the definition of a fish. Now, though it's, it's hard to see it on this one right here, if you look at the screen, you'll notice this picture. You can see clearly the fins. See the fins there, the top and the bottom, and you can see the gills near, near the head. Now, the interesting thing about eels is that when you catch them and you take them out of the water, their fins just collapse against their side, and they look like a snake. A poisonous snake. You can see one here. So the analogy is this. He's saying if an evil dad would be unwilling to give his son a rock and say it's bread, and if he's unwilling to give his son a poisonous snake and say it's a delicacy, but will only give his son good gifts, how much more would your heavenly father be willing to give to you? The problem is, as we're walking through life, God approaches us with a delicacy. We look at that and we go, well, I don't know, that looks kind of like a snake to me. God says, yeah, I know it looks like a snake. I know it does. But you've got to trust me. It's a delicacy. But we're running from it saying, that's a snake. It's a snake. It's a snake. And God is calling out to us, no, it's steak. It's steak. It's steak. And God ends up chasing us down the beach with this delicacy that we refuse to receive. You see, finding joy means resting in the goodness of God through poverty, through lost opportunities, through failed business, through natural disasters, through terminal illnesses. Uh, it's resting in the goodness of God. And God allows good and joy to come out of any and every circumstance. I mean, some of you are facing circumstances right now that look like snakes. And joy can be found in the midst of them. If you look at life as a good gift given to you by a good God. Now, secondly, Solomon would say joy comes when we comprehend life as it really is. In fact, as a child, I remember I'd play all day during the summer. I'd be down at the creek exploring or building forts with my friends. And I'd spend the entire day playing. And I would usually come in just before supper and I was starving. I'd run in the kitchen. Mom, what's for supper? When's we having supper? I've got to have something to eat. I'm starving, Mom. I'm starving. And my mom would always hand me this. Oh, here, have a cracker and cheese. Cracker and cheese? Yuck! I wasn't interested in that. I was looking for ice cream. I was looking for a handful of cookies, maybe a candy mar. But Mom, you know, she'd say, son, that'll spoil your supper. And so I'd get frustrated. I may take a nibble off of one, and then I'd stomp out of the kitchen saying something under my breath like, uh, I'm starving to death, I'm starving to death. Well, several weeks ago, 
Patty and I had some friends over for dinner. Guess what Patty put out on the table? (laughs) Crackers and cheese. But you know, I gladly accepted them because I knew they were just an appetizer. And I could see the chicken on the grill. I could hear the the, uh, water boiling for the sweet corn. I could smell the bread baking in the oven. And I saw the chocolate pie on the countertop. But guess what? I gladly accepted the cracker and cheese because I knew it was just an appetizer, a little something to whet my appetite, to tide me over for the meal that was coming. You know, the same is true today about life. We go through life, I mean, chasing career, pursuing possessions, pleasing our spouses or attempting to, and we fully expect that career and possessions and relationships are going to satisfy the deepest longings of our life. And when they don't, we get angry at God. We feel cheated. And we want to spit whatever that is out of our mouth like a sorry old cracker. You know, it was in the New Testament, Paul, an older man advising a younger man, when he said this. He says, Timothy, it's God who gives us richly all things to be enjoyed. I mean, what he's saying there is that we are to appreciate and enjoy all the good things of life that God has given us. Why? Because life is a gift from God. But these gifts are just mere appetizers. And the reason they're appetizers is because the real meal is yet to come. I mean, too many of us try to make a meal out of the appetizers, and then we complain to God why we're not filled. Wives, did you know all your husband is? is an appetizer. That's all he is. Now, you don't expect to get filled up on an appetizer, do you? No, you don't. You can choose to savor him and appreciate him as a gift given to you by God, or you can begin feeling ripped off that he's not perfect. But ladies, the choice is yours. And your perspective will make all the difference in the world. I mean, I can look at Patty today and I can savor her because I know that there's a feast to come. But furthermore, as Patty grows and as we've grown together and we accept each other's weaknesses and as we were coming more and more like Christ, I've started noticing that, well, the appetizer is starting to look a whole lot more like a sandwich. And that can happen in your life as well. And the reason is that life is not fair, it's not just, and that's because life is just an appetizer. I mean, men, do you know all your career is is an appetizer? Leaders, did you know all your stuff, the things you accumulate, your houses, your cars, your material possessions, they're just mere appetizers that point to something else in the future. You know, throughout our days, God will give us the ability to accept and cope with the reality of life, even though at times we don't understand it. Why? Well, because it's a mystery. But joy will come as we learn to accept life as a gift 
a good gift given to us by a good God. And we comprehend life for what it really is. It's just an appetizer. Now, now Solomon ends this whole section with a, a very unique perspective in verse 16. Let's look at it together. He says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done in the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man would seek laboriously, he will not discover and though a wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. I mean, what in the world is Solomon talking about here? He's saying if you want to have joy in life, then you've got to have the right perspective on God's mysteries. The problem is God's mysteries just defy human explanation. I mean, even though we stay up night after night trying to to seek the mind of God about a certain event or a certain thing, Solomon is saying we're just not equipped to understand all there is to know about life. We can't, we're not equipped to know about all God's mysteries. Mysteries defy explanation. So things happen in our life. They stun us. They shock us. And we go to God and we wait for Him to unfold the meaning of the drama. But it seems the more we wait, the less we grasp. And the more we seek to understand why, the more oblique the answer is. And you could say that that's because life is really a puzzle. Only... I mean, this puzzle has been dumped all over the floor. And you and I have to be content at bending over and picking up one piece at a time. We try to make them fit. I mean, we desperately want to make sense out of life, don't we? But life usually doesn't make sense. And so we have to pick up another piece Trying to connect the two. I mean, sometimes they connect. Like you lose your job, but you don't panic. You stay faithful to your family, stay connected with your kids. You don't throw in the towel. You keep trusting God. And nine months later, a better job comes along. And you realize that you hadn't lost this first job. You never would have been looking for this better job. Those two pieces seem to fit. Sometimes they don't. Your son's in an automobile accident. Now he's paraplegic. I mean, that doesn't fit no matter how many pieces you try to connect with it. Sometimes we pick up a piece and it's bright and shiny, but then it's followed by one that's dark and shadowy. But you and I have to be content to bend over and pick up piece after piece after peace, one at a time. Now, you, you may be here this morning exploring, and you're just not sure about this whole God in the Bible thing. I want to give you a, a reason why you might want to investigate it. Wouldn't it be great to have a partner that help, could help you see how the pieces fit? 
Wouldn't it be awesome to know that there is a purpose and a plan out there that makes sense? See, that's what the God of the Bible offers. He offers a plan and a partnership. Because this is what he sees, but we can't. You see, life is a mystery, and we, if we live with the perspective that it, it comes from the hands of a good God as an appetizer, and that it's a puzzle, then that puzzle piece fits into a bigger hole. And if we have that perspective, we'll be able to cope with life. But it'll be actually more than that. Your life will start becoming a mystery. And people will notice. And they'll want to know why. So we we began this service uh, with a song from Bob Dylan called Shelter in the Storm. Now Solomon would say that uh, the, the key to life is setting your anchor with God. And if you do, you'll discover that you'll not only survive the storms of life that come your way, you'll actually learn how to survive those storms. You know, if you're interested in God's plan and the partnership He would love to have with every one of us in this room, we would love to chat with you. I want to encourage you to drop by the hearth room after the service. We have some folks down there that would love to talk with you and put a name with a face. But maybe you're not ready for that. And I'd recommend that maybe, maybe you need more time. And I'd recommend that you simply pray, God, if what Doug said is true, and you want a partnership with me and there is a plan out there that makes things fit, would you show yourself to me? And I promise you, he'll answer that in one way or another. You know, if you came prepared to give this morning, offering boxes are out in the hall. You can just drop it off there. We are thrilled you're here and look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for coming. <laughs>